Welcome to Somato Psychics, where we explore the interactions between physiology and psychology. I'm your host, Nancy Brown, strength and movement coach in New York City. In each episode, I interview an expert on the human organism. This episode, I have with me Catherine Perry, parenting coach and child development expert. Catherine has done extensive graduate and postgraduate work in child development and parent-infant mental health, and sits on the advisory boards for South Bronx Early Head Start and Harlem Grown. Today, we'll talk about child development, regulation, trauma, and more. Catherine, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great. So um, today, obviously, we're here to talk about early childhood development. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the meat of what we're going to talk about is regulation. So can you just explain for our listeners what regulation is and how we regulate Oh, I'd love to. Um, regulation is so important, and not a lot of people understand what it means when I talk about regulating. So if you think about um, your body and your brain and everything that's happening, when you're well-regulated, it's when you're feeling secure and safe and happy. But in order to feel that way, so many different systems in your body have to be you know, cooperating. So that means physiologically, you're not hungry, you're not thirsty, you're not stressed, you're not too hot, you're not too cold, your temperature is good, the amount of, um, you have enough space, you're well-fed, you're not rushed, that's when you're regulated. So think about after you've had a good meal and you take a nice hot shower and you're surrounded by people you care about, you're well-regulated. So there are a lot of, what's happening sort of throughout the day is that people are getting dysregulated, like think about you're getting ready for... Uh, to go to work and you something happens or doesn't happen or you skip breakfast and you miss the train you're gonna you start to get dysregulated so every time something environmentally happens that might dysregulate you your body is trying to bring you back to regulation and we develop a lot of strategies to help ourselves come back to regulation some of them are good and some of them are bad Um, and so we're constantly sort of in flux throughout the day of feeling Um, regulated and dysregulated and part of that's just healthy and sometimes those systems can get a little wonky and or a little interesting at least so can you talk about the difference between an adult regulating and a child or an infant regulating yes so that's a really important you sort of have to learn how to self-regulate that's a that's a big job and that's sort of what babies have to do right when they come out so um Basically, what you have with an infant is this brand new central nervous system that was just grown by its mother in someone else's nervous system. So that big nervous system has to teach the little nervous system how to grow up. And part of that is you need to help your baby self-soothe in the beginning. So a lot of people will talk about it as self-soothing, but it's regulation. Um, So in the beginning, babies can't control anything in their environment, and they're totally helpless, and so they can't control their if they're hot or they're cold or if they're hungry or if they're not. And so the way that they ask an adult or their person to regulate them is through crying. There are other strategies that babies have. If you sort of slow down, you can see they'll maybe avoid gaze because they get overstimulated or maybe they'll try to um, giggle or there are strategies that babies have to try to get the adult to kind of fall in love with them and want to regulate them. So when you have your baby and you're rocking them and you're soothing them and you're doing these sort of patterned, repetitive, rhythmic things, you're teaching this nervous system, 
oh, this is what regulation is. And it's this dance back and forth because maybe mom or the other caregiver will sort of do all the um, regulating and then give a little stress to the baby. And the baby might get a little, oh, what are we doing? We're taking a hat off. And the baby will go, oh, this is okay. So that it's sort of like building up um, a muscle group, really. You're sort of teaching your nervous system how to regulate by giving this baby these tiny, predictable little stressors. Eye contact can be a stressor for an infant. So you don't really need to, you don't need to like leave them outside and teach them how to weather a storm immediately or anything. There's these tiny, predictable things that happen. Mm. And then as they get older, they get, they still need our help for quite a long time. I still know, I, I know adults who still need help regulating. <laughs> I, I need help regulating. We all do. So uh, you mentioned rhythm. Can mm-hmm. you dig a little bit more into the idea of rhythm for regulation? Regulation loves rhythm. <laughs> Everything that's sort of most regulating things are rhythmic. So one of the big ones, especially with children, is um, moms talk to their babies in a different way way than they'll probably than you and I are talking right now they're more it's called mother ease it's more melodic the rhythm is different uh, and you sort of you don't need to learn this language you'll just notice that you'll start talking to a baby that way because there's something um, in our brain that tells us this is how you talk to babies and it turns out that babies brains love it so they eat it it's easier for them to learn language and listen if you speak to them and this that's mother ease so it's this melodic it's rhythmic when you pat a baby when you rock a baby um i can't remember the citation but they have found that sort of the rate at which a baby likes to be rocked when it's crying is the same rate as a mother's resting heart rate so that speaks really to sort of how um dependent this organization is on its mother or other caregiver to sort of help it calm down and normally through rhythm so singing rocking swaying and people continue these strategies well into adulthood so you'll see kids um like picking or pulling or patting or tapping or um yeah think about play play is rhythm the swing what is that that's a very rhythmic thing but it's satisfying on some level being in the ocean it's rhythmic being on a being on horseback it's rhythmic Playing with a ball, it's rhythmic. You get in sort of this zone where there's something very deeply satisfying um, to your brain and body. Right, and so can we talk about a little bit about how regulation is physiological and uh, psychological as well? Sure, so I can, yeah. So how... Just that interplay between yeah, psychology so d- and physiology. D- if you sort of think about... Sometimes I need to explain to parents sort of what's happening with a child or a toddler, and this is sort of the if your your train was stuck underground for a long time and you were delayed and it's hot and it's stuffy and you're hungry and you're rushing somewhere, how likely are you to be receptive to a new idea? Not very likely. You're probably going to be, or if someone wants to have a deep, meaningful conversation, you're probably not going to be open to it. So you're kind of in order for you to have the capacity to have these sort of higher functioning feelings and abstract thought and you need the rest of your body to be cooperating and calm. So you're, um, 
if you're feeling sort of overwhelmed, you're If your body's feeling overwhelmed, you're probably going to get yourself into an emotional state of being anxious or being upset. And then you're probably going to seek out these strategies. So when people are anxious, upset, they'll pick their nails, they'll pick their lip, they'll pull their hair, they'll do these things, they'll check their phones. Mm -hmm. Um, They have strategies to sort of attempt to calm back down. But also sort of the emotional capacity you have at any given moment is related to how your body feels. How regulated your body is so if you're hungry or if you're sort of upset or if you just got into a fight with someone you really care about you're sort of shut down in certain ways mm-hmm. yeah it's uh, are you familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs yes that's a, yeah so thinking about that triangle is really helpful so if you don't have that sort of bottom part done you're not gonna really be able to access the top part and that really if you think about the brain as an inverted triangle that's a helpful way to think about it too so before sometimes people will look at a toddler having a tantrum and go well just stop just stop crying well you're trying to solve an emotional problem with with a in, with a cognitive strategy right <laughs> that's not you're you can't really meet um in order to regulate you yourself have to be regulated so if you scream at a toddler with a tantrum, like it's, who's, who's the adult? If someone is having a tantrum, you know, as a toddler or an adult, it's, that's not a good time to try to talk to them uh, or use a cognitive strategy. You need to start with their body. You need to, what does a toddler want when they're having a tantrum? They probably want to be held. They need to get their breathing back. They need to calm down first. They need to sort of sort out all of that stuff. And then you can go, well, we're not going to do that because you'll die if we do that. <laughs> or if you need to sort of, trying to do like cognitive stuff with a child if they're dysregulated is like trying to decorate a house that doesn't have plumbing. Mm, mm, like mm, you mm. need to get sort of the body right before you're able to access the mind. Yeah, and I find that so much in my own work working with people's bodies a lot of times you have things like you have a person who can't breathe well they actually can't mm-hmm. move air through their thorax properly or for whatever reason they're not able to get a lot of neurological feedback from their heels mm-hmm. right and so mm-hmm. they don't totally know where they are in space when they're walking around and this kind of individual is going to be pretty anxious oh for sure Can right you imagine if you're not like if you're not you can't rely on your body to give you air right <laughs> right you're it's it's an anxious feeling and so yeah you're probably like anxiety is so physical depression is physical most of these sort of mental health um things that we talk about with these feelings words we pretend like the body isn't involved mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it, it it's always so funny to me that People are surprised that the, like, newsflash, you guys, you know, your body is run by your brain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and your brain runs your emotions. And so those are inherently, like, linked. Mm-hmm. That's why people feel better. Like, it's, I don't know why people are surprised at sort of these things like, oh, if you go for a long run, you feel more regulated. You feel more, you know, you get rid of stress. And it's, the separation of the brain and the body is, is insane to me where do you think your brain is (laughs) it's in your body right well i think you know part of that is just that as organisms who have evolved to 
feed ourselves and to reproduce, we're, we've evolved to kind of try to manage our circumstances. So we've evolved to try mm-hmm. to manage these outside circumstances for our safety and for, to procreate. And so that's our first instinct is to manage our circumstances. The thing is, is that now we live in an environment where those basic needs are pretty easily met. Right. And, but we're still constantly looking outside ourselves to, to, yeah. to regulate, to regulate our state where we think that, Oh, if, if I just do this thing outside of me, right. then it'll regulate my state. It's like, well, actually maybe you just have something going on you physically. Ha- right. You have a lot more sort of. I mean, it's, it's amazing how, I mean, that's why sort of like meditation and mindfulness and all this stuff that people, it's so helpful for children. Mm. It's so helpful and it's helpful, honestly, for parents. <laughs> like you kind of need, sometimes the parents are the dysregulated ones. Mm-hmm. So they need sort of help managing their state. And so what I've found is that if you give people a little bit of information about how, the role the body plays in play and learning and intimacy and managing anything they're more receptive or they're able to sort of see it differently because your child isn't being willfully disobedient your child isn't being like mean your kid something's going on with this kid what and also sometimes i mean i had a child who had this huge tantrum and like couldn't use words at this point and the mom's like, what's happening? What's happening? What's happening? And kept asking the child, what's happening? <laughs> like the kid is going to tell you. <laughs> and what was happening was, oh, well, she was incredibly thirsty. Mm. And sometimes these physiological things sneak up on us. And before we're really able to access language properly and it gets so unmanageable and dysregulation has a lot of inertia. Like if you're in a bad mood, it takes, it's, if you do nothing, you're going to stay in a bad mood Mm. and it's probably going to get worse. So the older you get, hopefully the better, the more like the prefrontal cortex helps you manage these things. Um, and you get better at going, you know, I'm just hungry. I shouldn't have snapped at someone or I was just having a bad day. And so that's why I was sort of sent like a short text message or something. Mm -hmm. But when you know, you're talking about children, they don't really have that capacity, especially with language. And I think parents need to have um, expectations that are in line with sort of what is their role is in helping their child regulate. And that's why timeout is a really bad strategy for a tantrum. Because the last thing this little crying organism needs is isolation. That's not going to help him. Like a child doesn't do well if he feels bad Mm -hmm. no one does well if they feel bad Mm -hmm. so if a child is having a tantrum you can still enforce your boundary or your rule like because sometimes especially with toddlers it's just a safety thing like no we're not going to drink bleach sorry Uh, (laughs) and that can be a tantrum that's a tantrum i've I've, you can still calm them down and talk to them about hey do you want to calm your body down and once they have language about that it's easier for them to get off that tantrum train. Mm. And they go, let's just have some water. And you sort of can trick them into breathing. And once they sort of regain their breath, they're, they're going to come back down quicker. What I'm hearing a lot of is kind of aligning yourself with the child mm-hmm. and looking at it through the child's eyes. I think a lot of times in relationships, not just with children, but with adults, we tend to think of ourselves as 
team A and their right. team B, nope. right? And so like that kid having a tantrum is just them trying to get their way and they're trying yeah. to get one over on me. And I'm not gonna, and, t- I'm not gonna help. They're being manipulative. Yeah, exactly. They are. They're yeah. trying to manipulate you into helping them. Right. They're trying. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's a really good. It's they're trying to manipulate you into get, meeting their needs. Right. I hear parents use this language like, well, we don't want to teach them to be manipulative. Well, they're six weeks old, so um, help them. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the the irony is that there's this weird idea that if you give them more independence and you, they got to go it alone, they're going to be better. They're going to be more dependent because they're not going to be able to regulate. So they're going to be more... Um, yeah, it, if you really want a secure, happy, independent child that's like resourceful and has all of that, you know, the, those great buzzwords and, you know, um, and is resilient, you need to be really tender and emotionally available in the beginning. And they're, those are the children who are more likely to be adventurous and be risky. And those are the qualities that lead to really interesting learning. Mm. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about uh, state dependent learning yes, and okay. bonding. So state, I think, is an important... So your state is sort of on the regulation um, spectrum. Where are you? What is your state right now, Nancy? How are you feeling? I, f- I feel pretty good. Yeah, you're feeling receptive, yeah. open, calm. Great, that's your state. So uh, a child's state can... You talk about babies having states, like there's six different ones. You sort of, your big cry, little cry, sleep, deep sleep, drowsy, alert, um, and withdrawn. Like the, those are sort of states. Like how are you emotionally and physically? Because really for children, those are the same things um, early on. Uh, yeah, so if a child is, like I was saying earlier, feels secure and safe, they're more likely to go, I'm going to wander away from mom and go see what that does. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, for better or worse, is what learning is. So the safer a child feels, the more, the better they're going to be able to absorb knowledge. And they're not, so it's really important sort of an educational um, environments to make children feel safe. It's not coddling them or making them soft. It's going to make them more bold. Mm. So if a kid has this sort of safe place it could come back to, um, yeah, that's, that's sort of like state-dependent learning. But if a child is hungry or if a child is upset because of something that's happening on, at home or a child is distracted or if a child is, um, didn't sleep, you're, they're not going to learn well. Mm. Or if a child is scared. If a child is scared, they're not bringing in any information. And we can all relate to this. Think about when you're scared. Are you learning? No, you're, you know, you're trying to protect yourself. All of your mental energy and physical energy is spent on just trying to stay safe, to feel safe. But if the environment or the grown-ups around the child can help them feel safe, then that child does not need to expend that much mental energy trying to regulate itself. It has this energy to spare on learning. You can learn division if you feel good. You can learn these complex things. But another thing that I think is important for people to um, understand about children is that they need to learn how to um, work on these socio-emotional things before you ask them to do these cognitive things. Mm. So kids need to learn. Like, you can learn to do division at 19. You can't really learn to share at 19. 
<laughs> like that can't be your first foray into empathy. <laughs> it's in the beginning. It's really important to give children um, socio-emotional skills, and that is things like patience and things like regulation and things like sharing and caring about other people, taking care of other people. Um, all of those things are. I mean, if you want your kid to be a good, you know what the biggest predictor of reading is? Like good reading, it's narrative play. It's dress up. Mm. It doesn't matter if you have flashcards and you recognize letters. That's completely unrelated to learning or, or to reading. Mm. Reading is a story. It's about caring about a story. So if you help your child, like a lot of the parents that I work with are very concerned about these sort of school readiness things. But before your child can be school ready, they have to be ready to learn. You know, I've been thinking a lot about learning. Um at all stages of life lately, mm-hmm. I was reading this article about <laughs> synthetic biology and they, these scientists are trying to engineer cells, right? And mm-hmm. they were talking about how there's an issue where an engineer's job is to have, is to build predictive models, right? Mm-hmm. So you have these models, these equations, you plug in your inputs to get your outputs, right? Right. And they're running into some snags because they're saying like, well, okay, maybe cells didn't evolve to be understood by the human brain, mm-hmm. you know? So it's not that easy um, to just run these yeah. models on things. And so I was thinking about that and they were talking about the difference between that kind of engineering thinking versus a more kind of exploratory scientific thinking mm-hmm. where you're doing trial and error. Right. Right. And it's much more energy intensive, but you're getting this picture of reality, uh, That's through deep. this discovery process. Right. And so thinking about that being more like play, yeah. right. Versus like this kind of re- these received models that you're being given. It doesn't, what I try to sort of teach parents, cause they, you know, I'll come into a family's home and they just, they want the best. They want their kid to be the best and the smartest and the best. That's a whole different podcast. That's about crazy parents. But, um, <laughs> what I try to impress upon these parents is when you're at a meeting, who's impressive. Mm-hmm. Is it the person who memorized the most or is it the person who thought about something differently? Right. Exactly. So you need to start teaching your children how to think. Right. And the way you, you do that is sometimes you back off. Mm-hmm. So sometimes children have ways of approaching a problem that never would have occurred to us. Mm-hmm. So instead of, I see like if a kid wants to play a game in a way that doesn't fall, meet them where they are. Those are the rules. Oh, we're changing the rule. Okay. All right. Let's scaffold on this. Let's build from here. If you teach them to sort of be more creative because science also is at its core, incredibly creative. Oh, of course. Yeah. I think, I mean, I remember, I forget who said it, but now penicillin would never be dis- discovered because no one would have left the lab window open. <laughs> but that's true. Like, think of it. Like, it. You have to have these sort of, um, you have to be creative and you have to be good at relationships. What skill is useful or helpful in a vacuum? None of them. So if you really want to do right by your kid, throw out those flashcards. Mm-hmm. Take them to the park. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you, the advantage that a child will have is their capacity to engage, enjoy, and reciprocate relationships. Mm. And I think that's something that when I see these parents trying to give their children the best, 
they often cut off them cut out of the menu and mm-hmm. you see these children that sort of have they're very compliant they're very compliant but they're not very self-directed when i was teaching creative writing at columbia mm-hmm. it was an elective course and so i got a lot of students who were from different disciplines mm-hmm. and they were very confused about what I wanted from them. Oh, I bet. Especially <laughs> if they were like, like from, if they were raised in Manhattan, they were probably very confused. About yeah. So I remember having this one student who actually ended up writing some really interesting stuff, but she came to my office hours to ask me what she was supposed to write about. Um, you know, and I had just basically given them a, a page limit. We were going over topics in class, blah, blah, blah. But I just gave them page requirements. It was a fiction class. And she asked me what to write about. And I said, well, what are you obsessed with? You know, and she was was so baffled, you know. Oh. She had never been taught, like, that kind of skill set. Like, how to kind of come up with something on it. It was so foreign to her. It's a real shame because I see uh, this generation of children... And it's not all of them, of course, I'm like generalizing, but if you have really type A, like aggressive, high achieving parents, and I work for a lot of them, they, they end up sort of forgetting what got them there. Because a lot of those parents were from single, single parents and they didn't go to, they didn't have Mandarin classes at six months and they didn't do this. They were left alone outside to play. And so they ended up being, becoming incredibly successful because they knew how to think. Because mm. they had this sort of dynamic interaction with whatever. Or even if they had, it, it's, there's so many different ways to become successful. But I think the one thing that all successful people have in common is probably their ability to, you know, have healthy relationships. And mm. also, isn't that really what you, when you think about what you want for your child, it's not, you know, a salary or it's not an education. It's not, it's, you want them to be fulfilled in life. And how are you fulfilled in healthy relationships? Mm. That's a healthy kid. It's a healthy adult. So thinking about, um, healthy relationships and, uh, regulation, what can impair a child's ability to regulate? Oof. Well, it, a child is, who is not given is not taught how to regulate. And so what will happen is that some of these children will come up with strategies that are self-regulating, but kind of, um, I guess what you, you'd call it maladaptive. So when they went into sort of the um, institutionalized children that sort of were not held or touched or rocked or didn't have that big, strong nervous system to calm them down, they've developed some strategies and they're not great. Like you see children who rock, or they'll bang their head. They'll do repetitive movements. They might bite because mm-hmm. that pressure is satisfying. Mm. They might bite other children. And I'd say sometimes kids bite for no reason. It doesn't mean they have a trauma history if you have a biter on your hands. Um, but there's all these different ways, and for the your body's going to try to find a way to regulate. You just want to make sure it's using something healthy to regulate. Because what is addiction? It's a way to regulate. Mm-hmm. that's why you have people who are addicted to you know um, what is you know checking your phone every four seconds it's a way for us to regulate mm-hmm. so children will sort of um, they'll find a way to regulate you just want to make sure it's healthy and good for them 
So in a lot of ways, sort of having that lack of emotional and relational stability and safety and care can in some ways be more nefarious than if you had a, pres- a parent who was present and hit you a couple of times. Now, I'm not condoning like physical abuse or saying it's better or worse than neglect, but neglect is, um, it's tricky because it's harder to spot and it can be a lot more um, toxic. Mm. Because what you can end up with is a kid who's really relationally impaired. Mm. And that's a huge disadvantage. And it can be really much harder to kind of... I mean, in some ways, if you had a parent who came home and yelled at you, maybe it's better than the kid who didn't have a parent who came home at all. Mm. It's that isolation. Like Humans need a lot of connectivity. And especially early on. And if they're not given it, it's things can go wrong not all the time but it's you need relationships and you need to know how to enjoy a relationship because if you don't you'll find other things that give you joy and they might not be healthy Hmm. so you talked a little bit about these behaviors right and Mm -hmm. so i think one thing that's been really revelatory for me is learning about behavior being a way to regulate physiology, which obviously Mm -hmm. we've touched on. Um, But what specific physiological fallout can result from these kind of maladaptive regulation behaviors or an inability to regulate? Controlling pain in your body can be a way to sort of self-regulate. But another thing that will end up happening is that when your brain is growing and like learning about the environment it's going to grow in, it has to spend so much energy regulating, self-regulating, trying to self-regulate, that it doesn't maybe spend some of that other energy on growing in a healthy way. So you'll see a lot of kids who have like a neglect and um, trauma background, they'll have these weird physiological symptoms that you kind of don't think are related, but are 100% related. You'll have kids who sort of don't, can't really regulate their body temperature well, or you'll have kids who have sort of weird gait issues a walk weird because it's part of that. I you know I you can't really say if that's just because they didn't have the opportunity to be phys- physical with like a good grown up, or if, you know it's but there's like headaches, digestion problems um, in it like instant like a sensitivity to touch, like an intolerance to touch. Mm. Sort of um, there's all of these because when your brain is growing, it organizes from the bottom up. And so the bottom of your brain is your brainstem. And so your brainstem controls all these sort of systems like your heart rate and your body temperature and um, then like your movement. And so that happens first. And then when it's come, so when that part of your brain is coming together, if it's not getting the input it needs, it might, you think of it sort of like a building a house. You might have, you know, bad plumbing, or you might have sort of poor, um, I don't know, houses, so I can't really <laughs> run with this metaphor. <laughs> I don't know, bad wood, I guess that make for a bad house. I don't know, I don't know. I'm um, Foundation. Yeah, foundation, sure. Some of those things. Yeah, if you have sort of that, if you, you're trying to build on this sort of unstable foundation, you're going to have all these sort of weird things. Um, I can't speak to this, but I know a lot of clinicians who work with like severely traumatized children who are like institutionalized and they'll have these physiological symptoms that don't really fit a syndrome, but it's trauma. Mm. It's a lot. It's whether it was like 
And trauma doesn't have to be one terrible event or just physical violence. Trauma can be a, an unpredictable environment. Timing also really matters. So what's traumatic for a six-week-old is not necessarily traumatic for a 21-year-old. Mm -hmm. um, duration matters. It's all these things. That's also why like, sort of the ACE study is an interesting um, metric. So the ACE questionnaire, the ACEs are super sexy right now. Lots of people are talking about their ACE score or ACEs or, and I think it's important that we're talking about trauma, but the ACE metric, I think we need to talk about what the ACE is before we start attributing it to having, uh, the ACE is, a, it's 10 questions and it's categorical. You either did witness this or experience this or you did not. There's nothing about timing. There's nothing about your age. There's nothing about were there grown-ups around you that helped you made made you feel safe after mm -hmm, a bad car mm -hmm, accident. Mm -hmm. um, there's nothing. So there's no context. So your aces, it's broad, but it doesn't tell you that much about how you. It's still like you need to do a really thorough developmental history, mm. and you need the narrative. Because also you need to know what the meaning was for this person. Maybe they did experience a divorce, have like a family member go to like see a parent go to prison, but maybe it wasn't so bad for them. Maybe they had great grandparents and maybe their parents get along really well. That's not on the ACE. So the ACE doesn't really tell you about the nature of sort of the trauma, the duration or the timing. Mm -hmm. So you don't get as clear a picture as I think some people talk about. When I... I was at a job once and people would talk about their A score like it was a, like, oh, I have an A score of eight. That doesn't really tell me very much. What really I want to know is if, what was your, what were your relationships like? Mm. Who was there for you when that did happen or who wasn't? Um, that will tell you more sort of about what someone's, tr like, because someone can experience, have an A score of nine and maybe be completely healthy. Maybe it all happened when they were 15 mm -hmm. very quickly and they had a great support system. Or you can have an A score of two, but it happened when you were six or six months old and you had no support and you were alone. That's going to be, you're going to get a different person. Yeah. I think it's important too, to think about the fact that we're all just coming into this world a little bit different too. Oh, right. Yeah. And so I, I'm, uh, listening to, uh, why zebras don't get ulcers. Oh yeah. Robert Sapolsky. <laughs> yeah. He's great. He's so, a good, per his stress, when he talks about stress and what it does to your body and sort of feeling, I think when we think about trauma, we think it's this like abusive dad coming home and smacking you. But if you live in sort of an unpredictable, constantly stressed out environment that seeps into your brain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so one thing that I was actually listening to just before this mm -hmm. was he, he talked about the correlation between a smaller hippocampus and mm. PTSD. Mm. But what he was saying is that it's not actually totally clear where the causal relationship right. is. And so it could actually be that somebody with a smaller hippocampus is more predisposed to PTSD or more likely to digest. So Peter Fonagy has a wonderful quote about this and Peter Fonagy is fantastic and I have a huge crush on him. But, um, so if you're listening, Peter, call me. <laughs> um, he, um, 
he said that adversity becomes traumatic when one perceives that one's mind is alone. Mm. And I think that's the best way to think about it. Because you can have, like your parents get divorced, but you felt very well supported. It's maybe not a traumatic thing. Another thing that they looked at people who have experienced sort of natural disasters, who did get PTSD and who didn't, and what they found was that people who were able to sort of have their state when they had this traumatic event kind of did, or their ability to manage their state, when if they were able to go, this is gonna be over soon, this isn't forever. If you think it's forever and you think it's lasting and you think it's permanent, you're more likely to sort of digest adversity in a way that's uh, negatively impactful. Because one of the big things that's, the event doesn't give you PTSD how you process it or how you are or are not supported in the context of it. I, I, I don't like to say that certain parts of the brain are responsible for certain functions because it's so much more complicated than that. But mm -hmm. generally, like the hippocampus is related to um, like memory. So what you can kind of glean is that your ability to go oh, I've been through something difficult before and I came out fine, so this will be okay. Mm. So whatever the adverse experience is, your ability to digest it, I, I could see how maybe those things are related, especially mm, with your perception mm, mm. of time and permanence and memory. And like if you, have a, if you have like a personal sort of hard drive of going, no, I feel like I can handle this. Mm. But at the same time, you can have someone who... You know, you can have kids who have some of the worst upbringings and the most disadvantaged and all of these things counting against them. But man, their family was healthy relationally and they do a lot better than some of these, some kids who have a lot of financial resources but are very isolated. Mm. And so one thing can turn into a giant thing. So the first time they're dumped or the first time they get a bad grade, or the first, it can be devastating. Mm. So it's really important to think about context because I think it's easy for us to get into this competition of what's most traumatic or what's most painful or who's suffered the most. And it's just not a helpful metric. Mm. I think the ACE is broad strokes good. I'm glad we're talking about trauma, but I don't think it tells me as much as I'd want to know about a person. Mm. Mm. So just to wrap up, if you have a child who has had some kind of trauma and is having trouble regulating, uh, what do we do for them? There's no way you can heal a child without connection. But sometimes they're not ready to connect to adults yet. Sometimes mm. the person that hurt them is an adult. So it might not be very helpful for them to sit in a room and talk to a therapist. It might be helpful for them to do something physical. So starting in the body is a good thing. So you sort of figure out where the child is with their... Sometimes, like with infants, you can do infant massage. Like sometimes, like occupational therapists are these are like unsung heroes of trauma and they do great work. And some mm -hmm. of their work will be like learning how to blow bubbles. That's how you regulate your breath for a child. It's really regulating. Or bouncing on a ball or tapping. That can be a good way to calm down, but that's really regulating. Um... And just getting it also like pressure too, like weighted blankets mm, can be really mm, helpful for a mm. child. So just teaching a child how to be safe. So you're giving them that ability to self-regulate because you're helping them regulate. 
And for another really interesting sort of therapy that people have started to do, or I guess they've been doing it for a long time. Humans have done it for a very long time. We just haven't called it this, but um, equine assisted therapy or dog or like animal assisted therapy. And it's not that you just put a kid on a horse and you let them go. It's that you're, this child is learning how to take care of something. And it can be really advantageous because this child will gain this sort of self-confidence about, hey, and animals or horses in particular are very relational creatures. Mm-hmm. Anybody who's close to horses will talk to you like they're magic. <laughs> and I agree. I love being on a horse. I, if you ever want to have a serious conversation with me, put me on a horse. I'll be more regulated and more open to new suggestions. But um, yeah, equine assisted therapy can be great for trauma, especially if you had relational trauma. So you're not, so if sort of your, the thing that hurt you was a relationship with a person, maybe that's not the best way in. Maybe the best way in is a relationship with an animal. So once they sort of start to build confidence in that and their ability, and there's this reciprocity between the animal and you, and you start to trust it and they start to trust you, then maybe we can start doing some of the cognitive stuff. Mm. But we can't, again, I just, don't decorate a house before it has plumbing. Mm. So don't do cognitive stuff. And you start in the body with children. Maybe they need to go dancing. Maybe they need to play outside. Maybe they need to wrestle. Maybe they need to do all these things. So finding a child. And you also have to like listen to what is regulating for the child. It might not always be horseplay. Or it might not always be climbing. It might be a different kind of physical activity. It might be playing music. Um, and sort of meeting a child where they are and be having like a really open mind about how to be helpful and being really respectful of physical boundaries. Because if a child has trauma, a hand, like when you're standing above them, they probably already have an elevated heart rate because it's intimidating. Eye contact might be too much for this child. So paying attention to the, the signals they're giving you. Touch might be too much and it might be a huge violation. So I think sometimes really well-meaning teachers might come up behind a student and put a hand on their shoulder and that's activating and really upsetting. And then you end up with a child who's, you know, has like a, I'm using quotes and a behavioral incident, mm-hmm. but really the ch- child was just, their brain was reacting to the world they grew up in. Mm. And if the world they grew up in touch was dangerous, mm. then they're really doing a, a pretty adaptive thing. Mm, <laughs> they're trying to keep mm, themselves mm, safe. Mm, mm. So that's a good way to think about these um, maladaptive or sort of like quotes again, mentally um, ill behavior things. It's, these are strategies. Hmm. So trying to figure out why these ch- children develop those strategies, how are they serving them, and what can we replace? So it's hard to give a short answer to any of this stuff because every kid is different, every experience is different, and also the meaning that every child makes from their experience is different. So you really have to... Be humble. I think that's a big thing. Be really humble every time you meet a new child. If you're an mm. educator, if you're a daycare worker, if you're working with someone else's child, if you're a babysitter, if you're around children in any capacity, you know, wait to be invited into their world. Mm. Don't assume that you have the rights to come in and demand love and intimacy immediately. You got a slow warm up for every child. I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Great. So, um, if somebody wanted to for instance consult with you oh yes about uh their own child Mm -hmm. how would they reach out to you so i've got a twitter and instagram and a website and um so i do phone consultations with parents and it doesn't have to be with something a huge behavioral issue having a child is hard 
period. I know a lot about it. So, <laughs> I know the science, you know your child. Let's be curious about your child together. There's not a lot of, um, I think a parent can never have too many resources. So my website is www.katherinemperry.com and it's Catherine spelled K-A-T-H-A-R-I-N-E, um, like Hepburn. <laughs> that's, that's what my mother says. Um, that's also my Twitter handle and my uh, and my Instagram. And yeah, I want to sort of situate myself as just a resource for parents and for other professionals that maybe work with children, because um, I have strong academic background in it, and also a lot of you know, I've worked with a lot of children, and it's hard, and everybody needs support. So yeah. Wonderful. This has been terrific. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's so great to come here. That concludes today's episode of Somatopsychics. Show notes, including links to Catherine's media, will be up on my website at www.trainwithnancy.com backslash podcast. I know she has some really interesting articles up on her website that you'll want to check out. If you want to check out my own writing on fitness, gender politics, and embodiment, That's also all up on trainwithnancy.com. We've got a bunch of exciting guests on the roster, and I'm actually going to do a kind of somatopsychic audio memoir about my time as a bikini competitor in bodybuilding shows and how the physiological process I underwent really did a number on me psychologically. If you don't want to miss it, please subscribe. Until then, be well, my fellow organisms.